Now the beautiful ancient song Deirdre's farewell to Scotland. This recording is of my mother, then in her 80s, singing and playing the guitar. She's singing a song I grew up with, that she sang at the end of every Cayley. She always said it was Scotland's oldest song. Deirdre's farewell to Scotland. Years later, I found myself living on the west coast of Scotland, not far from where Deirdre and Nisha, the figures in the Ulster cycle of myths, are supposed to have gone when they fled from Connor, the High King of Ulster, who had wanted to keep Deirdre for himself. Because right opposite us here, at the mouth of the River Aw, there's a small fort, and it's called Dunan Yechul, which is the fort of the Lady of the Sorrows, or the Tears. My name is Kenneth Stephen, and I'm a poet and writer. I decided I wanted to create a sequence of poems reimagining the Scottish part of the story, magnifying in particular the very heart of it, of Deirdre and her lover Nisha, the great love story shared by Scotland and Ireland. You find that the power of this great story does run very, very deep. And, of course, coming to live in Scotland, having started my life in Ireland, I was fascinated by the wealth of material that there is to be found here. In this programme, I'm tracing the story back to Ireland to learn more about its origins and how it has inspired writers and musicians down through the centuries. The story of Deirdre is an eternal source of creativity, I think, from the outset, from that extraordinary image of Deirdre, the baby, crying in the womb. It's brilliant. My version of the story is woven really from the fragments of knowledge I gleaned from the song and swathes of imagination. Through the slit of glass, she watched for him. Her smile glowed his heart. He brought her things to admire, to puzzle over, to laugh at. Always her eyes on the trees, for even the trees have ears. Sometimes her left hand brushed him away. The High King's men might be watching, for she knew for sure they did. But sometimes there was no fear at all. And he made faces and mimed, so she laughed till the tears coursed down her cheeks. And when he had slid back into the trees and was gone, she turned over the memory of him in her mind, like a faceted stone, blue and white. And she thought of him through the long dark. 
I've come to Ireland to find out more about the story of Deirdre of the Sorrows. And I'm starting in Dublin at the Dublin Institute of Advanced Studies, which was set up in 1940 by Eamon de Valera. Hello, Dr Christina Cleary. Hiya, Kenneth. Nice Good to, to meet, meet you. you. Nice the Institute rather unusually combines research into Celtic studies, theoretical physics and cosmic physics. And I'm here to meet Dr Christina Cleary of the School of Celtic Studies. Oh, you're very much welcome. This is the School of Celtic Studies side of the Institute. So we're going to go upstairs today. Christina, I'd, I really hoped to come into Trinity College to view some of the earliest manuscripts. I don't seem to be able to do that. Unfortunately, I can't at the moment due to works in the old library. But luckily we can make up for it with online resources like Irish Script on Screen, which is a digitisation project that's housed by the Dublin Institute for Advanced Studies. So you can see here we have some nice high resolution images that we can look at instead. And we can also, we have a, a facsimile, a copy of the Book of Leinster as well, which we can, we can leaf through. Christina, is the story to be found in many of the early manuscripts? There are three manuscripts that contain the uh, oldest version of the tale of the Deirdre story. So you have the 12th century Book of Leinster and then you have the manuscript known as the Yellow Book of Lecan. This is a huge compilation and that belongs to the 14th to the 15th century. And then you have a uh, manuscript that's housed by the British Library called Edgerton 1782. Not a very catchy title. <laughs> And that is a 16th century manuscript. And there are, are only three surviving copies of the oldest version of, of the Deirdre story. The oldest being the Book of Leinster. Can we have a, a look then, Christina, at that, at that first page on, on, on the screen and tell me more about it? So we're looking at page 259B and we're looking at the beginning of the old Irish version of the Deirdre story, Lungus MacNishlin. That's its title, its, its early Irish title. Lungus means exile, so the exile of the sons of Ishlu. And this here is the beginning of, uh, of the text, this large sea, it's zoomorphic, it's decorated with a little uh, animal head there. And importantly, as I look at it, I have to say, because of the, the script, mm. um, it's quite difficult for me, as an amateur here, to, to read it. What is its language? That's the important thing. This is an early Irish text, and it was uh, probably composed in the Old Irish period, so we'd say probably around the 9th century, let's say. So the language is kind of Old Irish and a little bit of Middle Irish. But we would say historically it, it was composed in the Old Irish period, around the 9th century. And it's difficult for us to read because the text contains many abbreviations. And I would love if you might read the opening section. Okay, so uh, it begins Kid the Amoy Lungus Magnishni Nianza Bother Ullad Egol Adik Fedlimtha Magdal Schelige Kuncovery Boy Dano Ben Nedlimtha Eg Arug Dunthlug Osakin Ishi Thurch. And that means Why was the exile of the sons of Ishlu? That's not hard, Nianza. The Ulstermen were drinking in the house of Fedlimth Magdal, the storyteller of Kuncovery. The wife of Fedlamath was attending upon the host, standing up, and she was pregnant. And of course, the, the baby in the womb 
is Deirdre. Can you tell me about that section and the prophecy? Okay, so at the time the feast is uh, is going on and there are roars, the cheers of laughter, enjoyment at the feast. And this very heavily pregnant woman, Fethelmuth's wife, is serving the altar warriors. And they have all gone to bed at one point when she's walking across the hall, probably very tired from having served them all evening. In the middle of the hall as she's crossing it, they hear a loud scream. It stops everybody in their tracks. Immediately, they know something is wrong. She's brought to the druid Cothfuz. Cothfuz announces, In the receptacle of your womb there cried out a woman of yellow hair with yellow curls, with comely grey-blue irised eyes. Her purplish-pink cheeks are like foxglove. To the colour of snow I compare the spotless treasure of her set of teeth. Lustrous are her scarlet red lips, a woman for whom there will be many slaughters among the chariot fighters of Ulster. And that's the catalyst for the rest, the rest of the story, or at least it becomes the catalyst later on. The word that is contained in her name is Dord, and it's doubled like the word murmur. It's Dordord. This is Damien McManus, Emeritus Professor of Early Irish at Trinity College Dublin. And she's named for the verb used in the early text for her crying out in the mother's womb. The thing that causes men to attack one another is Deirdre there. So, you know, she's named, therefore, from, from that cry. So she's the, the wailer, if you like. And um, her cry causes men who are peaceful to immediately attack one another. And of Nisha, we're told that he and his brothers they're all characterised by an andord, which is the opposite of dord, and that's a singing voice which causes men to be peaceful and cows to produce more milk because they're relaxed. But it's expressed in sound symbolism, which is absolutely, you know, a gorgeous element, but lost, lost in translation. Nisha fled through the wood till he broke out into the gold of the dawn, drank from the chattering stream till the water had slaked his thirst. Deirdre, he thought, Deirdre. He whispered her name to the silence and thought how she now might be his. She was so close he almost could touch her. I'm standing on a hillside in County Armagh in Northern Ireland looking at a high mound which is topped by a lot of bushes and then by by trees. Rosaline Litter is a guide here at the Navan Centre and Fort and we're about two miles from Armagh City. Rosaline, can I ask you to explain in much better terms what it is that we're looking at? Well, Kenneth, we're looking at um, the large bank and ditch surrounding the Navanfort site, which is indicative of the fact that it's actually a ceremonial site. So you have this large bank on the outside, and then you have this ditch or walkway on the inside, which was used as a processional walk to walk around the site in circles, praising those ancient Celtic pagan gods and goddesses. 
Now, prior to that, it was a place of habitation, so you would have had a cycle of several roundhouses up there at the top of the site with your whole clan essentially living there and your hierarchy of high king, druids, soldiers, nurturers and farmers in the outlying fields. And uh, around 95 BC there seems to have been a dramatic change where they cleared away all evidence of habitation and they began to construct a massive wooden temple at the top of the site and then eventually the covering of the temple uh, with earth results in this uh, strangely artificial looking clearly man-made mound at the very top of the site. How important would you say it is in, in Irish terms? Oh it's, it's an extremely important site. It's the seat of the High Kings of Ulster. It's the site of Awen, Awen Maka which is named after a goddess and her twins. So Maka was the ancient Celtic pagan goddess uh, who the people worshipped in this area before the arrival of St Patrick and Christianity. Um, So it was a political centre, a religious centre, seat of the high kings. It features within the Ulster cycle of tales uh, very strongly. Um, So it's an extremely important site. I'm interested, Rosaline, in hearing more about the links to the Deirdre story. So we'll move on a little closer to the site then for you, Kenneth. Well, we're standing um, at the base of the actual mound at Navan Fort here, Kenneth, and this, of course, was the home of the warriors, the kings, King Conor MacNassa, um, this was their homestead here before the large wooden temple was built in Iron Age. And the mound is just right behind me here. And what about these all-important links to the story of the legend of Deirdre and Nisha? Um, so whenever she was born, the Druids foretold that she would bring sorrow. King Connor's solution was that he would raise her quietly at his kingdom here at Awen and keep her basically out of sight and raise her up and then marry her himself when she came of age. And it's one day when a female satirist who used to visit her, Leverham, is is visiting Deirdre and she sees a calf being killed outside the fort on the snow. And I'm sure you're well aware of (laughs) what happens next. Um, Deirdre says, oh, I wished that I had a man who had skin as white as snow, cheeks as red as the blood that's been spilled and hair as black as the raven that's drinking the blood in front of the fort. And Leverham says, oh, I actually know a man like that. (laughs) His name is Moisha and he bears all of those three traits. And so uh, Deirdre kind of conspires to to bump into Nisha, let's say. <laughs> and she uh, uh, she goes out one day and passes him on the rampart at Navin Fort. He makes a comment as much to say, it's a beautiful, beautiful heifer that's going past me here, which I suppose was probably a compliment. <laughs> um, and uh, she responds in kind and he realises who she is and all of a sudden you can tell from the story his world is about to fall apart and she grabs him by the ears and she says you will take me with you these will be two years of shame and derision unless you take me with you and he says okay 
we better we better leave though Deirdre <laughs> and after that they flee from uh, from Navenfort they flee from Evenvache and they take with them a large a large retinue Nisha's brothers of course hundreds of people as exiles and then the sea wove them into her garment the slow breathing of the waves the lift and drag what in all the wonder of heaven had she thought of to follow this boy over the water to Alba he scarcely knew her name like all the rest he had dreamt something in her blue eyes and thought he had seen her soul The Glenmassan manuscript is a famous Gaelic manuscript which is preserved now in Scotland in the National Library but which originated, it is thought, in the northwest of Ireland. It's 16th century in date. The manuscript contains a variety of late medieval prose texts but clearly the most famous one is the story of Deirdre. Professor Michal Omanian at Queen's University Belfast. What's distinct is not so much the characters, the characters are the same, nor is it the narrative sequence. The events that take place are broadly the same. But what is particularly uh, distinct about the later version is that it contains further material, in verse in particular, which we don't get in the old version. So there are a number of poems, and almost all of these are placed in the mouth of Deirdre herself. And among these poems is the one which begins with the first line, Unvun cheer and cheer ud thout, dear land, is that land yonder. And the land yonder, of course, is Scotland. So this is a poem of eight or nine verses, if I remember correctly. We have Glenn Masson in the fifth verse, and the quatrain is very short. Glenn Masson, or the chriv gal a rasson, the nimish kolov korach os inver mungach masson which the editor, Cuivy McAulillier, in his edition of this story, has translated as follows. Glen Masson, tall its garlic, bright its sprigs. We would sleep fitfully above the grassy estuary of Masson. It's clear uh, in this verse that there's a sense of the local topography, that whoever wrote this poem uh, and wrote this verse was familiar with the area and knew that as well as Glen Masson, there was an, an estuary called Masson. The following verse contains a reference to Glenetive, which securely identifies the text as drawing on place names in Cowell in this part of Argyll. And there's Glendaruid as well, and others. I've come back to Scotland and I'm standing here right on the shores of Loch Etiv in Argyll, in the west of Scotland, at a most beautiful vantage point looking straight north to the mountains of Glencoe and to the other side an arm that would take us out to the sea to the open sea mountains garlanded with with forest with woodland and I'm here to talk to John McFarlane local historian about all the links between Glenetiv Lochetiv and Deirdre of the Sorrows. Well, we're standing in the right place for, for me to do that here, because right opposite this here, at the mouth of the River Awe, 
There's a small fort and it's called Dunan Yechul, which is the fort of the Lady of the Sorrows or the Tears. And that's the way we call her in Gaelic here, Dirchul. And uh, it's connected with our mother fort higher up the hill. It's called Dunle, which has got a connection with healing, but I believe is mentioned in one of the, the poems that are connected with Deirdre. And would you say, is the place suffused then with Deirdre names and with links to the whole story? Absolutely. Uh, looking north up the glen here, uh, or northeast really, we have two things there. There's a place which is known locally as Deirdre Sunny Bower, Grian and Yerchul in Gaelic, and it's where she's alleged to have had the place where she can relax and enjoy the sunshine. And it is always suffused with sunshine, actually. And opposite it, uh, there's another place, which is called Caderley in, in English now. But in fact, that's very closely connected with Deirdre, because the name itself in Gaelic is Ger Lis, which means the garden where tears are dispensed. And the place is supposed to have been where she grew an apple tree which had golden apples, which is connected obviously with the, the archetypical tale of the golden apples of the Hesperides. And do you feel yourself, John, that there are roots to a real story here? I do, because there are one or two other place names here that are very much connected just behind me here to the south, there's a hill called Croch Arteny, and that was connected with the brother Artan of Deirdre's lover. And beside it, near the slopes of that hill, there's a very ancient wood there that probably heard the, the sounds of their hunting horns, and is called Culinage in Gaelic, which is Nunch's wood and it's so ancient as a woodland that it must have been there and a hunting place for them when they were here. And I feel that their spirit is in the area yet. And looking around all of this magnificent landscape and seascape around me by Loch Etivside, I'm realising just how precious it must have been to Deirdre and Nisha for that time of sojourn. But of course it wasn't to last. They were to be hunted out again and returned to Ireland. Let this be Christmas, she said. He brought her a strong trout, silver-veined, still slippery from the stream. The last wild apples from a gnarled tree right out at the end of the creek. There was someone here before us, he said, someone who planted that tree. They never came to find us, she said, and he saw the blue of her eyes, knew why he loved her, for he saw all of her soul in those eyes. He wanted to tell her they'd come one day, but it was Christmas and he could not. 
I want to go back to the song that started me off on this whole journey, Deirdre's Farewell to Scotland, because Deirdre and Nisha have been assured that it's safe for them to go back to Ireland. And I've come to Edinburgh to meet artist Deirdre Nivahuna to discover more about the origins of that song. How did it come to be found, Deirdre? Deirdre's Farewell to Scotland has a long provenance and was first noted in the Glenmasson manuscript and was transcribed over and over again until it became more widely known in the 19th century when it was published in Llornafania, or the Book of the Fingolians, collected and annotated by John Francis Campbell of Isla. And the song that you know, Deirdre's Farewell to Scotland, is there in this publication as Deirdre's Lament, where she names the places where she and Nisha and Alan and Arda had lived and sought refuge and been happy. Basically, this was their honeymoon here in, in Argyllshire. And she speaks so lovingly of the places around Glenetev and the Cowell Peninsula especially. Tell me about Marjorie Kennedy Fraser and her collecting of songs. Marjorie Kennedy Fraser was a well-known performer and pianist and arranger of songs um, who also was very taken with the Highlands. And she made friends with... Kenneth MacLeod, who seems to have been the most wonderful character and the best of company. He was from Egg, had native Gaelic. They went on to collaborate and in many cases he would provide airs for um, songs that, that she was interested in. Now, at that time, there was a wealth of material that had recently been published. The Llornafania, also... Alexander Carmichael had been doing some wonderful collecting where he had gathered two versions of the Deirdre story on the Isle of Barra. Marjorie Kennedy Fraser utilised pieces from both of these stories of Deirdre that have been collected and published. And of course we have the 1928 recording from Songs of the Hebrides of Marjorie Kennedy Fraser on piano and her sister Margaret Kennedy singing. And the song has continued to be popular with Scottish singers, with versions in Gaelic from, for example, the Tainult Gaelic Choir. And there have been lots of popular versions in English too, Deirdre? There have indeed. One is Eddie Reader in 2019. Dear Star, 
Over the centuries, the story of Deirdre of the Sorrows has inspired writers, artists and musicians, both in Ireland and in Scotland. And that includes the period of the Celtic Revival, the Irish Celtic Revival and the Scottish Celtic Revival. With me now is Chris Morash, who is Seamus Heaney Professor of Irish Writing in the School of English at Trinity College Dublin. Can I ask you first, Chris, about Lady Gregory and her interpretation of the figure of Deirdre? Yeah, I think if there is a pivotal figure in the contemporary memory of Deirdre, it probably is due to Lady Gregory. And it's due to her retelling of the Ulster cycle of, of, of myths um, in a book called um, Cúhollán of Merthemna, which she published in, I think it was 1902. And... In that book, what she does, she does something remarkable because if you go back to the original manuscript sources, the old Irish sources, there are multiple sources. They're contradictory. They are not interested really in narrative in a sense that we would recognize. They're quite episodic. And what she manages to do is to take all these various sources together and makes them into a story. I mean, Yeats, in his introduction to that book, said, I think this is the best book to come out of Ireland in our time. And he writes of the Deirdre story in it. He says, a dozen manuscripts have had to give their best before the beads are ready for the necklace. And I think that's a lovely image, that what Lady Gregory does is takes all of these disparate sources and she puts them together as a story. The prophecy, Act 1, the exiled Scotland, Act 2, and then the return and the tragedy, if you like, Act 3 to ask then about Yeats and his work um, with, the, with the Deirdre play. Yeats is trying to find a form for modern tragedy. So what he does is he takes the point of implosion. He takes the point of climax. So he, he, he doesn't give us the opening act, the prophecy. He doesn't give us the exile in Scotland. He just gives us the final bit. And he pushes it all together. But what he does is he introduces three characters who are simply described as three musicians. And later in his career, he'll write plays where he uses these characters, the three musicians, almost as kind of narrators, almost like a Greek chorus. So what Yeats is interested in is, in the modern world, he senses, we no longer have shared stories in the way that we used to. So that when an artist creates something it doesn't necessarily have a resonating chamber out there in the world. What he hopes to find in mythology is that kind of resonating chamber. And he hopes he's going to find that in Irish myth. He wants to instill in his audience a collective memory of this myth that will resonate for them. So what he does is he takes the point of greatest sort of impact, if you like. He condenses it, distills it even further so that it has this sort of impact. But because he has these three musicians in it, it really is a play about how we remember these things. A lot of the play is about how Deirdre will be remembered. That Deirdre triumphs even though she dies because she knows she will be sung about. She'll be remembered. And it's that sense of immortality Immortality as memory, or memory as immortality, that Yeats is really interested in. Can I turn 
Chris to John Millington Singh and ask about his interpretation then in, in his play. Singh's play, Dear to the Sorrows, this is the play Singh was working on as he was dying himself. So the story which is so saturated with loss and with death becomes also almost like an autobiographical piece in the reading, that this becomes the play that Singh is writing about his own death. And Yeats is very instrumental in putting that connection together. I think the thing you see with when you read Singh's play is the language is so alive. You know, I, I mean, I just picked out a, a passage here. This is at, toward the end of the play. There's a scene at the end where the palace is in flames and Deirdre knows she's going to die. And what she says is, I have put away sorrow like a shoe that is worn out and muddy. I mean, what a great phrase. You know, and, and, and Yeats once describes Singh's writing as all that has edge, all that is salt in the mouth. And I think what you get with Singh's writing is language that's saturated with physical, natural things, mud, trees, the smell of trees, the smell of grass, the smell, the smell of the world. And I think what makes the play so powerful is that you are acutely aware of the world, and particularly in that middle act set in Scotland, which he sets in a, in a forest. So you have this sense of being very much in the natural world, but knowing you have to leave it. I think Singh's play really is a play about leaving Eden. Scotland, in this case, is Eden. One day he came back with news of a white strand that ran for miles. They sped there and broke out into the sea, the delicious cool of it, the blue-green deep. When evening came, they trailed back tired, talking and not talking. That night there was no night. The sky held its blue, so light they could have walked for miles and miles unguided. They did not sleep. There was no need. Instead, they sat and watched, like children at a window, with all the summer left to play. The story of Deirdre is an eternal source of creativity. I think, from the outset, from that extraordinary image of Deirdre, the baby, crying in the womb. It's brilliant. Vincent Woods is an Irish poet and playwright, and he wrote about Deirdre of the Sorrows in his 2005 play, A Cry from Heaven. So your interpretation, Vincent, is it still a tragic Deirdre that you are finding? Utterly tragic utterly tragic and it, it it becomes a tragedy I suppose not only of Deirdre but a, a tragedy of the land the futility of war the play ends in devastation and uh, this broken ward landscape and as I wrote of course as always happens as you write things emerge and uh, I was always again very taken by the relationship between Deirdre and her nurse, 
Larchem. So I, I expanded that and made this kind of very tender, loving relationship between them, between the adult Deirdre and Larchem, um, who hadn't had children of her own. And again, I extended the story so that Deirdre is pregnant, has given birth before she kills herself. And uh, in the most terrible twist, Larchem ends up killing the baby in order to protect him. It's a little boy. And in, in a way to make peace, she kills the thing she loves most. Uh, and, uh, yeah, it, it became this this very clear journey for me into not so much into the past at all as into the eternal present and into the eternal present of what human beings do to each other and how how war especially, how war is sparked and the terrible destructive power of war. Vincent, it would be tremendous to hear something of the voice of your Deirdre. This is before Deirdre even meets Nisha. You know, she, she, she describes this dream she's had where she sees a young man hunting. So she describes what she had seen. He was hunting with two others. It was winter. The deer was young and lithe. The snow was everywhere. Great branches silent in the white of day. They cornered her upon the crest of Manon. Her fawn cried in a hidden slope. She was dappled with the light of autumn appling. She was trembling with his hands upon her throat. A thread of blood runs round. The stitch unravels. Her head held back. His grip a tautened bow. He draws the thread again. The main knot severs. Her life pours hot and staining in the snow. I'm joined again by Deirdre Nia You've also taken inspiration from the story, haven't you? Yes, I have. Um, I suppose for everyone with the name of Deirdre, you find that the power of this great story does run very, very deep. And of course, coming to live in Scotland, having started my life in Ireland, I was fascinated by the wealth of material that there is to be found here. And particularly when I later discovered that there are really just these two very powerful sources that might have been missed, if not for some great collectors. Um, And so within this story that Alexander Carmichael collected on Barra, there is just a small amount of poetry. But my goodness, it is such powerful poetry. And it has been put to music at least once by... Marjorie Kennedy Fraser and Kenneth MacLeod. But it seems to be really, um, it lends itself to further exploration. And what part of the Deirdre story in particular have you chosen, did you choose to focus on? I've chosen to focus on Deirdre's premonition. It's sometimes described as Deirdre's vision. But this is just at the time when they have become quite settled in the Cowell Peninsula and she is feeling very much at home and the three brothers have been away and they come back and they're full of the joys but she she can see only danger 
she has a premonition that they are going to be hounded back to Ireland. And it comes in the form of this very classic storytelling triad, where first of all, she sees the three white doves with the three sips of honey in their mouths. And she asks Nisha, can you explain to me, what does this ogre, what is the meaning of this vision? And he fobs her off and says, oh, it's just women's melancholy. Give over all this stuff. Everything's fine. (laughs) And she comes back again. And this time she sees the three mealy-mouthed hawks with the three drops of blood, cold blood of heroes in their mouths. And Nisha, son of Ushna, enlightened me. What is the meaning of this vision? Again, he fobs her off. He says, nothing to worry about. Everything's going to be grand. (laughs) The third time she comes back, and on this occasion, she sees the three black ravens with the three sad leaves of the yew tree of death in their mouths. And she's just not taking any of his nonsense this time. But somehow or other, she can't not go back with Nisha and his two brothers. They are a band. They have to stay together and they know that their fates are intertwined. So she agrees, even though she knows what's coming next. And really, he does too. But their fate can't be escaped. Hanukkah's not free 
It was inevitable, I suppose, that the story of Deirdre and Nisha was to end in tragedy. The lovers were persuaded to return when King Connor sent emissaries to tell them they could return to Ireland in safety. Damien McManus again. Deirdre's death in the Book of Leinster is very different to the, the modern versions. In the Book of Leinster, Nisha and his brothers are killed and she's then taken into Connor's court she lives there for a year. The text says that she didn't smile, she didn't eat, she didn't sleep. Um, and she sings this song when Connor asks her to come and join them in the banquet hall and to drink and all that. And she says, your drink wouldn't taste anything like the waters of the forests of Scotland where we drink and all that. And then Connor gets really annoyed and he threatens that he'll take her to the man who killed Nisha. And she's put in a chariot then standing between Connor and the man who killed Nisha, and that just just goes too far. She sees a boulder and she jumps from the chariot and smashes her head off the, the boulder. That's the final image, she smashes, smashes her head. I started my journey knowing nothing of the real Deirdre. What I feel I have now is the sense of a fossil, the imprint of a real story and of history, however thin and frail that imprint might be. I'll keep it safe, like the memory of my mother singing the song. I deliberately chose to end my sequence of poems with the lovers and their farewell. I had wanted to create their story, and it seemed fitting that their words to one another should be the last we hear. I'm here he whispered, and found her in the darkness. They touched and held, as once they did that first time, the tenderness no less. It's no different now to when I used to hide, hoping to glimpse you in the tower. He smiled. He held her. All of it was worth our journey. There is nothing to regret. They cannot take from us all we have been given, all we have found. I want to remember your scent, she said. So when we waken in the next world, I will know you. Softly, they kissed. She sat up and looked at him. And there we will have our child, the one that should have been. 